the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad you survived the extremely hot weather here in the Portland metro area and have joined us. James Blend, he survived. He's producing today's program. Clark Hilton, he made it through engineering. Dan Rice, he lives and he's given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to share a classic interview with Josh Burnett. He is an owner of a Chick-fil-A. He's also an um well, I guess that's all I can say about that. He's the co-author of Adulting 101, Book 2. We'll talk with him about that, share that classic interview in the second hour of today's program. Well, it's not really news to anybody who lives in this area that Portland hit a record-breaking temperature of 116 degrees shortly after 5 p.m. yesterday. That's according to the National Weather Service. But it's been a weekend of record-breaking heat for the city of Portland and uh, the entire Pacific Northwest. The city saw 112 degrees on Sunday afternoon, according to the National Weather Service, setting the previous all-time record high for the city. It broke the city's all-time June record of 102. Well, the previous all-time high was 112. That was reached Sunday afternoon, which beat the 108 on Saturday. But before this weekend, the record was 107. The Portland International Airport reached 107 degrees once in July of 1965, twice in August of 81. Well, the National Weather Service issued an excessive heat warning for most inland areas on Saturday, Sunday, and yesterday. Parts of eastern Oregon will be under the heat warning starting uh, Monday through Friday of next week. Well, Portland could be headed for the worst uh, heat wave since 2009, with the possibility of 11 straight days of temperatures reaching above 90 degrees. You know, 90 doesn't sound that bad now that we've lived through 115 116, 90, that's a real cool day. Well, several cooling centers will be open through the weekend in Oregon and Washington due to the extreme weather. Um, and KGW-TV has a, a number 211 you can call to find out where these cooling places are. Some of them are local churches in both the Portland metro area and in Clark County. On Friday, the Oregon Health Authority suspended COVID-19 capacity limits on swimming pools, movie theaters, shopping malls, and that was to allow for more people to stay cool during the heat wave. That was very generous of them, given the fact that tomorrow... All the restrictions will be lifted that the governor has authority over. Multnomah County has shared several ways to keep children safe from the heat. You can go to uh, their website for more information on how to do that. Well, tracking the heat wave impact on the Pacific Northwest crops and farm workers was something I found rather interesting. The... Um, Pacific Northwest grows most of the world's cherries, and there's concern about what's going to happen to the crop this year. I was talking to a friend earlier today who pointed out that uh, their blueberries spent. They're, they're done. Uh, anyway, the Washington State Fruit Commission is working to track the impact of the historic heat wave that we've just lived through with millions of dollars on the line. Never seen it get this hot. 
That's what B.J. Thurlby says. He's the president of, I assume it's a he, I don't really know. Well, Thurlby um, is also part of the Northwest Cherry Growers. He said so far cherries harvested over the scorching weekend are still of high quality. But boy, we're knocking on wood. We're tapping our toes, he went on to say. Well, his organization uh, uh, tracks cherry crops in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, and Utah. This year's crops are estimated at about 230,000 metric tons, mostly grown in Washington and Oregon. And that comes out to tens of millions of dollars on the line for local and regional farmers. Cherries are like people. When it's really, really hot, we slow down. So the cherries' um, sizing process slows down. Similar... Uh, for apples and pears. Now, I'm more concerned about peaches. That's my favorite fruit for the season. But apples and pears will also have some impact. He's now waiting for more reports uh, by Friday to see if sustained temperatures over 100 degrees is going to damage fruit crops. And we don't know because we've uh, never been there. These were record-breaking temperatures. And this season following the 90-degree weather days that are following could also have an impact. In 2017, a heat wave in the Yakima area, it subjected crops to 105 degree weather for five straight days. Uh, Mr. Thurlby said that uh, cherries maintain their quality that year, so he hopes the same will happen through this hotter weather this year. Another crop in the Pacific Northwest feeling the heat is wheat. However, it has uh, suffered for longer through ongoing drought over the last few years. The producers are completely dependent on moisture that comes from the sky. That's Amanda Hoy, CEO of the Oregon Wheat Growers League. Not the best news for Oregon wheat producers. She said without enough water, wheat does not grow as big, resulting in less grain yield. And, of course, that uh, represents the livelihood of lots of people, our fellow Oregonian and Washingtonian neighbors. Another concern with the dry foliage is fire danger. In 2018, the deadly uh, substation fire tore through tens of thousands of acres of Oregon wheat. Uh, Hoy expressed hope that community would uh, maintain fire prevention efforts so that doesn't happen again with temperatures. At least 100 degrees forecasted over the next week in much of central and eastern Washington and Oregon. Some farms are taking precautions. In cherry orchards, uh, she says, farm workers are harvesting fruit overnight to avoid the hottest daytime temperatures. Um, and he said the shift, if necessary, during the busiest cherry harvest time between the 15th and of June and the 15th of July. Absolutely at the very peak of our season right now, Thurlby said, if a grower were to pick uh, uh, the time he'd rather see heat, it would be August. However, for now, he said, so far, so good about the cherry crop, expressing hope farmers can weather the heat. And weather the heat, they must if they want to um, harvest those crops. Now, speaking of fire danger, there are some counties and uh, towns that have banned fireworks in the Portland metro area. Of course, the 4th of July coming up uh, technically on Sunday, but the holiday on Monday. Some counties and towns across Portland, Vancouver, the metro areas, have banned fireworks because of the extreme heat and dry conditions that will continue over the next several days. Well, counties and towns across the area, they're banning the fireworks. Um, uh, Portland hasn't seen any rain for two weeks, and the city is coming off three days of record triple-digit heat. Portland has seen only 32% of its normal rainfall since April and just shy of 2.25 inches. Uh, that's according to um, Rod Hill, meteorologist with KGW. Well, when Portland Fire and Rescue Chief Sarah Boone announced Portland's fireworks ban, she said even though the ban is uh, difficult for businesses that depend on fireworks sale or for people who look forward to celebrating the 4th of July with fireworks, it's the right decision. If we don't take this proactive step now, I fear the consequences could be devastating. 
uh, she says. Well, look at what the counties and towns in the uh, metro area are banning. Portland Fire and Rescue announced a ban on Tuesday morning on all legal and illegal fireworks. The ban goes into effect immediately. Uh, Portland Fire and Rescue did not say when the ban would be lifted. They said that fire investigators uh, wouldn't be patrolling to catch people using fireworks, but they will investigate all fires that have a connection to fireworks, and it's possible to trace back to the origins. If your firework, uh, firework use is found as a cause, you will be held responsible, they say. Fireworks, uh, rather fireworks, um, use is um, uh, that cause injury or extensive damage can result in heavy fines and or jail time. In Clark County, uh, there's also some restriction there. Clark County announced a ban on all sale and use of fireworks in the unincorporated area of the county beginning Tuesday through midnight on July 4th, when the legal use of fireworks would normally end. Uh, we've had an unusually dry spring for the Pacific Northwest. Clark County Fire Marshal Dan Young says that coupled with a record-breaking heat wave led to conditions that increase our fire danger risk in Clark County. Well, local jurisdictions in Clark County have also banned fireworks, including the cities of Battleground, Ridgefield, La Center, Camas, and Washougal. Vancouver already has an existing fireworks ban within the city limits. The Tualatin City Council unanimously passed an emergency resolution that bans the use of fireworks in the city of Tualatin. That's through the 9th of July. Tualatin City Councilor Valerie Pratt said that the ban was passed due to concerns of increased likelihood of fire damage from the use of fireworks due to the current dry and hot conditions. So um, there you have it. These areas are restricting uh, the use of fireworks altogether. Well, in other local news, Portland police officers have been instructed to no longer make traffic stops for certain kinds of non-safety-related moving violations and to change their approach to consent searches as the department grapples with a lack of resources and available officers, according to the city's mayor and top officials on Tuesday. Mayor Ted Wheeler was joined by Portland Police Bureau, and this is last Tuesday, by the way, Chief Chuck Lavelle, uh, for an afternoon video conference to announce that officers will no longer be asked to respond to traffic stops that are not immediately related to safety threats. Portland Police Bureau officers have also been ordered under the city's new consent search procedure to clearly inform the person of their right to refuse or revoke their consent and must also record their request when asking the person for consent to search, uh, according to um, Mayor Wheeler. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Out of time. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in uh, the second hour of today's program, we'll hear a classic conversation with Josh Burnett. He is an owner and operator of Chick-fil-A, works with lots of young people. He's the co-author of Adulting 101 Book 2, coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, it's unclear if former President Trump will again run for the Oval Office in 2024. But another issue is whether Mr. Trump may care to be Speaker of the House when the new Congress begins in January of 2023. I know you're probably scratching your head and asking, what? Well, some of that conjecture started to churn again over the weekend when the former president held a campaign-style rally in Wellington, Ohio. Uh, This all got stirred up recently when House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, a Republican out of California, appeared to suggest during an interview on Fox News that the former president wanted to be speaker should Republicans claim control of the House in the 2022 midterms. McCarthy's aide immediately mopped this up 
They said that the former president wants McCarthy to persuade to preside rather as speaker if the GOP flips the House next year. But whether President Trump could emerge as the 55th speaker of the House raises a very interesting question. Could it actually happen? Now, there were suggestions that the former president may try to seek a seat in Congress representing Palm Beach, Florida, home to Mar-a-Lago. In an interview with uh, Wayne Allen Root, Trump argued that becoming speaker might be better. He described the possibility as very interesting. Well, the problem with that is a former president or former President Trump is registered to vote in the 21st Congressional District of Florida, currently held by Representative Louis Frankel, a Democrat from Florida. The district favors Democrats by eight points. Frankel uh, vanquished her GOP opponent, Laura Loomer, by 20 points. The former president even lost to uh, President Biden on uh, his home turf. 58% to 41%. I don't typically like to deal with hypotheticals, but I thought that was rather intriguing. In other developments, Jesse Waters says a DeSantis variant of Trump derangement syndrome is evident in his new online outrage. By the way, he has come up in the latest poll as the front runner for the GOP. CNN's Chris Cuomo takes an indirect swipe at ABC's John Carl for trying to rehab Trumpsters uh, following the Barr report. And Senator Tim Scott launches uh, his 2022 reelection bid, saying it's time to go back to the future. Representative, or rather, Senator Tim Scott is the, Afri- the only African American senator and a Republican in the U.S. Senate. Mitch McConnell is blasting the Democrats' infrastructure strategy, accusing Schumer and Pelosi uh, of holding the bipartisan deal hostage. Well, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is being slammed for calling concern over the spike in crime hysteria. She has, you know, people who protect her. Representative Ocasio-Cortez, the Democrat from New York, was sharply criticized over the weekend following her claim that concern from people over the spike in crime rates across the country amounts to hysteria. Well, during a conversation with Representative Jamal Bowman, a Democrat from New York, over Zoom, she seemingly um, cast doubt over the data showing crime rates rising in cities throughout the U.S., especially in New York, where shooting incidents and murders have risen 53 percent and 13 percent since the beginning of the year. We are seeing these headlines about percentage increases, she says. Now, I want to say that any amount of harm is unacceptable and too much, but I also want to make sure that this hysteria, you know, that this doesn't drive a hysteria and that uh, we look at these numbers in context so that we can make responsible decisions about what to allocate in that context. So in the um, in the context of crime occurring and the victims who suffer as uh, perpetrators um, perpetrate their crimes apparently is important to her. But the crime itself, well, that's probably an overstatement. Well, the far left squad member was lambasted by critics on social media following the comments, with some calling them shameful and others mocking her for downplaying crime statistics while feeding into uh, uh, premonitions of the world ending due to climate change. Well, in other developments, AOC joined uh, climate change protesters accused of blocking the entrance to the White House. And Guardian Angels Curtis Sliwa, remember him, New York City GOP nominee, he says he plans to crack down on crime in New York City uh, if he is elected mayor, saying, I'll end all-out crazy AOC's de Blasio's handcuffing of the NYPD. Megan McCain says defund the police was the stupidest thing she ever heard. Well, apparently an official said the now collapsed Florida building was in good shape despite warnings. 
Just three years before a high-rise condominium collapse in Florida Thursday, a local building official told board members that the building was in very good shape, despite warnings from an engineer about structural problems. Former Surfside building official Rosendo Ross Prito made the comments during a meeting at the Champlain Towers South. Uh, It was the board of directors, according to the minutes of that meeting released after the collapse. But about a month earlier, a report from the uh, uh, consultants and engineering firm pointed out flaws in the building ahead of the um, uh, of work that would be needed for the building to meet 40-year recertification in 2021, documents show. Then the engineering report found that the pool decks um, a waterproofing had failed and was not sloped to drain water. That was a concern for the concrete slab under the pool and other parts of the structure. It also pointed to abundant cracking in concrete columns and beams. Failures to replace the waterproofing in the near future will cause the extent of the um, concrete deterioration to expand exponentially, the report stated. However, Prado Uh, said during the meeting that the engineering report showed the building is in very good shape, the minutes show, and he told the then-town manager in an email the next day that the building was off to a positive start for its recertification as required by local law. Uh. In other developments, a report says a woman told her husband on the phone she saw the pool cave in before the building fell. Remembering the dead and missing, officials confirmed the 11th victim with still others missing. The Miami condo collapse leaves a man assuming he'll never see his mom or grandmother again. Well, the heat wave nationwide has seen temperatures soar, so we're not alone. And White House Press Secretary Saki, she cast the GOP as the party of defund the police after the slogan backfired on Democrats. Now, this is breathtaking to me, how she can pull that off with a straight face and without being challenged I suppose isn't all that surprising in the era we live in. NBA coach Jeff Van Gundy said, I'm sick of the sissification of the game, referring to basketball. Now, he is a retired coach, so I guess he can get away with it. He won't be tarred and feathered as others so often are. Gwen Berry said the flag-snubbing U.S. track and field star is being defended by the White House. Well, the Child Tax Credit 2021, this is the last day to opt out of payments if you are uh, opposed to the uh, the concept. And Mitch McConnell is urging Biden to pressure Pelosi and Schumer on the infrastructure bill. Well, the White House is trying to peddle the story that the GOP wants to defund the police. For the past week, Democrats have struggled with the reality that their defund the police mantra is killing them in the polls. The latest effort pretend it was the Republicans. And who knows? People are stupid enough. They must uh, reason to actually believe it. They have no long term memory. So we'll see how that goes. Senator Tim Scott called it the most ridiculous thing he'd ever heard all year long. And we've heard some pretty ridiculous things from his colleagues on the other side of the political aisle. Rich Lowry says they're brazen and desperate. Then um, there's Jen Psaki saying Republicans voted to defend the to defund the police. Julio Rosa says, right, it was the GOP Minneapolis City Council who said they wanted to abolish their police department. It was the GOP New York City Council who took away one billion dollars from their police. And it was the GOP Portland City Council who cut 15 million dollars. Oh, wait, those were Democrats. Matt Whitlock says, on the very day the children of the Biden White House decide to to all try and pretend actually Republicans defunded the police, Democrats in California actually vote to defund more police. If you're going to gaslight, don't let it blow up in your face, end quote.
Well, California is adding Florida and four other states to their travel ban uh, because the far left state doesn't believe it's wrong for a man to compete as a woman, among other things. Uh, This biased Axios story, called the laws targeting trans people as opposed to protecting women, notes the total number of banned states is now up to 17. From Politico's Jeremy White, California now bans state-funded travel to states comprising about a third of America's total population, around 105 million residents. And Mark Davis points out the list grows of states that have found a way to protect themselves from visits by annoying California government workers. Well, the White House defends the athlete who turned her back on the U.S. flag, showing how disturbingly leftist the Biden administration has become backing a woman who disrespects the country she is supposed to represent. Gerard Barker, or rather Baker, uh, uh, also commented, saying, in America, you disrespect the institution of your uh, country and you get lionized by the media. You take a knee or turn away from the flag or refuse to take the field or the court while the national anthem is played, and you get nodded assent from the authorities who control the sport. You can denounce what your country stands for and get elected to Congress. That's fine. It's all part of the strange, perhaps ultimately unsustainable contradiction of living in a genuinely free society. But can we at least acknowledge that it is an extraordinary privilege? This failure to understand American greatness lies at the heart of a delightful uh, paradox in the progressive's approach to immigration. And from Congressman Dan Crenshaw, we don't need any more activist athletes. She should be removed from the team. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a man has won the Miss Nevada title. Once again, a man supplants a female in her world, and he is celebrated and protected by the left. Portland police will no longer stop people for low-level traffic violations. The reason why? Apparently because blacks are getting stopped. Uh, And that's the reasoning behind what I explained earlier in the program. Well, CNN's Jake Tapper sees a 75% decline since January, while at the uh, cable Uh, While all of cable saw a drop once they no longer had Donald Trump to complain about, Tapper's decline was, well, a bit more stunning. Well, a D.C. federal court on Monday dismissed lawsuits by the Federal Trade Commission and 48 U.S. states seeking to break up Facebook over its engagement in anti-competitive practices. Well, the Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, had alleged that Facebook engaged in anti-competitive conduct through its acquisition of messaging app WhatsApp and social media app Instagram. However, Judge James uh, Bosberg of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia wrote in his opinion that the uh, FTC was unable to detail its methods for concluding that Facebook held a dominant market share of social networking services. The FTC has failed to plead enough facts to plausibly establish a necessary element of its claims, namely that Facebook has monopoly power in the market of personal social networking services. The complaint contains nothing that uh, on that score save the naked allegation that the company has had and still has a dominant share of that market in excess of 60%. Well, Bolsberg granted Facebook's motion to dismiss the lawsuit but gave the FTC time to file an amended complaint if the agency chooses to do so. The FTC will be able to file an amended complaint within 30 days. Well, California Democrats are seeking to change the recall rules to help Newsom survive his recall effort. And now it goes to the governor's desk where he can decide how to proceed, depending on what provides him the best outcome. 
From the story, the proposal, and that story can be read in the Washington Times, the proposal now headed to Newsom's desk would allow the recall to proceed at least 30 days earlier than under existing state law. Democrats uh, hope to take advantage of what they view as favorable conditions for Newsom as the state moves on from the worst days of the pandemic and related restrictions. From another story, the Daily Caller uh, writes, uh, they're trying to create a situation that is most favorable for the partisan outcome that they favor. Jack Citrin, a political science professor at the University of California, Berkeley, told the AP. He noted that changing the calendar threatens to reinforce the narrative that politicians will do whatever they want to stay in power. A former NBA player calls his coach a racist for telling him to pass the ball to a player who happens to be white. From the story, uh, during an interview on the Dan Patrick show, uh, Pippen was asked about a moment in the 1994 Eastern Conference semifinals in which Jackson instructed him to pass the ball to Tony uh, Kukic. And I don't know the basketball player's name, so if I mispronounced it, I apologize. My fault, my fault, my grievous fault. Anyway, Tony Kukic, or whatever his name is, <laughs> is, uh, is white uh, for the final shot of the fourth quarter. Well, why would Tony, who was a rookie, get the last uh, second shot and you put me out to, uh, out of bounds? That's what I mean, racial, Pippin said. When asked if he understood that he was, a, was calling um, Jackson a racist, Pippin made it clear that he was aware. So now you have to take into account what a coach recommends in passing the ball in football, volleyball, basketball, because there are racial overtones, not that the coach just desperately wants to win because that's in his best interest uh, and the best interest of the team. But he has racial undertones and wanted to deprive Pippen, apparently, of the glory. Wow. You know, life is going to be really difficult if we have to put everything through that filter uh, of race. Well, a new diet device locks the jaw to slow eating. Huh. Some say it's torture device, but it appears to be working. Well, by dodging the school bathrooms case, the U.S. Supreme Court has cemented an earlier win for transgender rights. Conservatives are frustrated by the Supreme Court's repeated refusals to take up gender dysmorphia cases. The Manhattan DA rather reportedly won't charge Donald Trump. That's definitely not the end of the story. You can read more in Politico. Nancy Pelosi unveiled the Democrat-controlled January 6th committee and teases appointing a Republican to the committee. You know, as a token, the White House stands by Black Lives Matter nominee Tracy Stone Manning, despite her eco-terrorism links and views on population control. By the way, we are facing an underpopulation challenge. Ex-FBI lawyer Kevin uh, Kleinsmith is facing a one-year bar suspension after a guilty plea for his FISA deception. And there's a new uh, increase in migrant children at the border five months into Biden's tenure, and there's no sign of slowing. Of course, the vice president didn't go anywhere near that on Friday when she visited the border, in quotes. Well, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines likely produce lasting immunity, we're being told. And L.A. County uh, strongly recommends masks indoors regardless of your vaccination status. That's L.A. County. Tomorrow, things change in Oregon. Around the nation, the death toll hits 11 in the Florida condo collapse. 150 are still missing, according to the Miami Herald. Mayor de Blasio flip-flopped, vowing to flood the zone in Times Square in the wake of a shooting there. 76% yearn for more law enforcement in high-crime neighborhoods. They even want more cops in San Francisco. 
And in the annals of the social justice caliphate, woke corporations, um, the NBA, Nike, Apple, Google, they're silent on China's crackdown on journalists in Hong Kong. I mean, they've got businesses to run, profits to make. A biological male competitor won the Miss Nevada USA contest. And Wisconsin birth forms are giving parents a gender-neutral option. Well, football is gay. So says the just-released NFL pro-LGBT ad. I'm not sure how you make that case. It's not heterosexual. It's not homosexual. How is it any of those things at all? And yet, that's the era we live in. Well, on this day in history, 1927, the first Trans-Pacific Air Flight, uh, airplane flight is uh, completed as U.S. Army Air Corps Lieutenant Lester Maitland and Lieutenant Albert uh, Hingenberger. They arrive at Wheeler Field in Hawaii aboard the Bird of Paradise, an Atlantic Fokker th- uh, C2, after flying 2,400 miles from Oakland, California, in 25 hours and 50 minutes. 1956, the year I was born, the Interstate Highway Act is signed, calling for the creation of 40,000 miles of highway connecting major cities in the U.S. 1964. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 is passed after an 83-day filibuster in the Senate. 83 days. 1967, on this day in history, Jerusalem is reunified as Israel removes barricades separating the old city from the Israeli sector. 1972, the last U.S. combat brigade leaves Vietnam. It's a pretty big day for those veterans of the Vietnam War, those who survived. 1995, the space shuttle Atlantis and the Russian Mir space station link in orbit, beginning an historic five-day voyage as a single ship. 2006, the Supreme Court rules 5-3. to three. The President George W. Bush's plan to try Guantanamo Bay detainees in military tribunals violates U.S. and international law. And finally, on this day in history, Apple releases the iPhone, its first mobile phone, and it goes on sale for the first time in the U.S. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. At least 11 people have died and more than 150 are still missing after the Miami condo collapsed Thursday in Surfside, Florida. Well, the president of the Champlain South Towers Condo Association in an April letter wrote that damage to the garage has gotten significantly worse since a 2018 inspection and that the concrete deterioration of the building was accelerating. That's according to reports revealed on Monday. At least 11 people have died and more than 150 are still missing after the Miami condo partially collapsed early Thursday in Surfside, Florida. Rescue workers continue to search for survivors in the rubble. In the April 9th letter, the Surfside condo board president, um, Jean Wadnicki, wrote how the building was in desperate need of repairs, and she urged residents to pay millions of dollars in assessments needed to fix structural problems. A lot of this work could have been done or planned for in years gone by, but this is uh, where we are now, uh, she pointed out, according to the Wall Street Journal. She noted that in the fall of 2018, engineering firm uh, Morabito Consultants was hired to inspect the building Uh, The reports say the engineering report pointed out flaws of the building ahead of the work that would be needed for the building to meet 40 year recertification in 2021. The report found that the uh, pool decks waterproofing had failed, among other things. About a month after the report, the former Surfside building official um, told the association in a meeting, as I mentioned earlier, that the building was in very good shape. The response was very positive 
from everyone in the room. Well, that wasn't exactly true. But in April, uh, Woodnicki told Champlain South Tower residents that the initial inspection was not enough to determine the full scale of structural issues to the building. It's impossible to know the extent of the damage to the underlying rebar until the concrete is opened up. Oftentimes, the damage is more extensive than can be determined by inspection of the surface. Uh, She went on to say, when you can visually see the concrete spalling or cracking, that means the rebar holding it together is rusting and deteriorating beneath the surface. The concrete deterioration is accelerating. The roof situation got much worse, so extensive roof repairs had to be incorporated. Well, the firm's 2018 report noted that some repairs were needed in the near future, according to the representative of the consulting firm. Um, An attorney for the Conto Association told the Wall Street Journal that the 2018 engineer's report didn't raise any alarms. Concrete spalling, rebar deterioration, these are not unusual events when you have buildings exposed exposed to corrosive conditions. The letter's purpose was to explain the worthiness of construction projects for the building ahead of a meeting on a proposed special assessment of $15 million to be paid by residents according to the paper. So while it sounds ominous in hindsight, apparently at um, at that time it wasn't uh, particularly unusual uh, uh, or dangerous, I suppose, to have overlooked those things that we now know um, were serious hazards. Meanwhile, the New York Times was recently awarded a Pulitzer Prize for a distinguished example of meritorious public service through its coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, this formerly prestigious award has been reduced to little more than a participation trophy in the pandemonium of parrots in the mainstream media. Well, these parrots reference political documents and oppositional research as vetted and confirmed information and continually squawk their own narrative, not the dispassionate facts of the news. Robin Smith, writing on the subject, says this, The soaring citation for the top prize offers supporting evidence of the basis for criticism. For courageous, prescient, and sweeping coverage of the coronavirus pandemic that exposed racial and economic inequities, government failures in the U.S. and beyond, and fulfilled a data vacuum that helped local governments, healthcare providers, businesses, and individuals to be better prepared and protected, end quote. Well, the New York Times did indeed offer feature peaches, uh, pieces rather, I love peaches, feature pieces capturing the grueling work of healthcare providers, first responders, and many uh, untitled individuals who served in the midst of COVID. It did leverage resources available to smaller publications to provide epidemiological data that provided the scale of impact in various analyses. However, courageous uh, courageous and prescient are terms that do not seem to apply to the paper's praise offered to China or the effort to deny that the virus came from Wuhan's lab. Uh, even as recently as February of this year, the New York Times was aided by the World Health Organization in rejecting the possibility of a lab leak, despite the fact that none of the 174 initial COVID positive patients ever visited the market in question, even patient zero. The virus originated near an international laboratory rated as biosafety level four, the highest rating. The lab is committed to research on Uh, pathogens that cause fatal diseases like Ebola. The Wuhan Institute of Virology is renowned for housing the largest bank of viral strains, more than one, more than 1,500 rather. But according to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, fact checkers, and the New York Times, we should not distrust the communist Chinese. 
When asked to be honest about its own state's governor, the New York Times repeatedly fell short during the COVID crisis. New York nursing home deaths far exceeded other uh, comparable states. But the New York Times had no trouble shaming other states that better managed senior care while keeping their economies more uh, open and getting children back to classrooms. The New York Times was committed to pushing a one-size-fits-all COVID response during demographics, uh, availability of open space, weather, and other data relevant to these decisions that permitted some states to entrust their citizens rather than pronounce that livelihoods were expendable, the high recovery rates of the virus notwithstanding. That is exactly the aim of big government socialists who constantly uh, mistake equity for equality, taking away independent thinking and treating everything with sameness, not effectiveness. Well, in January this year, Axios wrote of the trust crisis that exists around key institutions, chief among them the media and government, referencing the 21st annual Edelman Trust Barometer. Those who compose and construct the news are deeply mistrusted. Some 56% of Americans surveyed are, agree that journalists and reporters are purposely trying to mislead people by saying things they know are false or gross exaggerations. Another 58% agree that most news organizations are merely concerned about supporting an ideology or political position than with informing the public, end quote. Recognizing the power of the November 2020 election, Edelman repolled Americans after the election. Data deteriorated even further. With only 57% of Democrats and a paltry 18% of Republicans trusting the media at all. Well, those demanding bipartisanship most actually the most biased, rendering no public service. Instead, the Pulitzer Prize is diminished to a souvenir for selling out. Quoting Robin Smith, writing for the Patriot Post. Well, the COVID vaccines are a political mess. And if you want to know why many people have refused or declined to uh, have the vaccine administered, there are reasons, and I think plausible reasons, for doing so. Even many who took the vaccine are not thoroughly convinced it's in their best interest or that we know enough about their efficacy and safety. One of the great ironies exposed during the coronavirus pandemic is the professed dedication to science from the same people suppressing scientific debate. The American Heritage Dictionary defines science as a noun, meaning the observation, identification, description, experimental investigation, and the- theoretical explanation of phenomenon. In other words, to paraphrase the great scientist Steven Tyler from the rock band Aerosmith, science is often a journey, not a destination. Well, some science is settled, of course, like the fact that there are two biological sexes or that life begins at conception. The usual suspects suppress or reject that science. Science. Other science is still undetermined because the subject uh, subject matter is relatively new. Take COVID vac- uh, vaccines, for instance. It was an impressive feat of scientific achievement that multiple vaccines were developed last year in record time. Much credit goes to President Trump for initiating Operation Warp Speed. Never mind President Joe Biden's disgraceful attempts to take credit More on that in a moment. But we do need to take a break. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. Then I'll be back to tell you the rest of that story. COVID vaccines, a political mess. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Hey, we're back. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up later in our next couple of segments, we'll hear from Josh Burnett. He is a Chick-fil-A owner and operator, works with lots of young people. He's also the co-author of Adulting 101, Book 2. I'd recommend both volumes if you're interested. They're uh, published by Broad Street uh, Publishing. More on that in our next couple of segments. Well, just before the top of the hour break, I was talking about the COVID vaccines and the fact that there is a political mess that lay behind behind the debate and decisions that have been made up to this point. Um, One of the things that um, uh, the points I was making is that there's some science that's settled, of course, like the fact that there are two biological sexes or that life begins at conception. Okay, I say that it's it's settled, but it's unsettling that these days we don't recognize settled science. The usual suspects uh, suppress or reject that science. Other science is still undetermined because the subject matter is relatively new. Take COVID vaccines For instance, well, it was an impressive feat of scientific achievement that multiple vaccines were developed last year in record time. Much credit goes to President Trump for initiating Operation Warp Speed, despite the fact that others have shamefully attempted to uh, take credit. Um, We'll, again, revisit that in a moment. Yet because these vaccines were developed using new mRNA technology and they were designed to fight a novel virus, the short clinical testing and emergency approval left a lot of questions unanswered. For example, how does this vaccine perform in a population at large? What are the side effects and how dangerous are they? Are they? Should people who've had COVID still get the vaccine? Well, Mark Alexander wrote last week, understanding the increased incidence of myocarditis in ages 16 to 24 is particularly important given the growing chorus of secondary schools and colleges requiring vaccination as a condition of attendance. Likewise, many employers of young people may mandate the vaccine as a term of employment. Well, a study in Norway is attempting to determine correlation or causation in the deaths of 100 nursing home residents who received the Pfizer vaccine. It was likely a factor of a factor in 10 deaths and possibly a factor in another 26. Serious questions like these deserve investigation and open and honest answers. The only thing anyone can do is make a choice based on the best information possible. But when information is suppressed because of the political bent of social media platforms or news organizations, we're left with less information than we need. And again, that explains at least in part why some are very reluctant, hesitant, or refuse to take the vaccine altogether. Well, it's a little surprise that after uh, the initial surge in vaccination among Americans' population, the rate has tailed off dramatically. In fact, as uh, noted, President Biden has on multiple occasions wrongly taken credit for getting so many Americans vaccinated so quickly. In the first couple of months after he took office, all he had to do was not drop the baton that Trump had handed him. Well, maintaining the pace, however, was Biden's responsibility, at least insofar as a president even plays a role in private medical decisions, which is perhaps an entirely different story. Well, on Tuesday, the White House quietly conceded that the U.S. will not reach his goal of vaccinating 70 percent of American adults by the 4th of July. Now, this was the only goal for which Biden has uh, been truly responsible, and it has not been met. Now, I mentioned um, Last week, I believe that when Fauci was uh, asked about the 70 percent figure, it's not based on science. It doesn't have any implications other than, as he put it, it just sounded like a good place to land. Well, the most hesitant group is adults 18 to 26, the only demographic that will not hit 70 percent and also the reason for the overall shortfall. Uh, We make a few brief uh, bullet points on that uh, fact. The virus has roughly a 99.99 
4% survivability rate among people age 20 to 24. So that makes sense. And that's if they're among the one in 10 Americans of any age who've even contracted the virus. Young people generally see themselves as somewhat invincible, yet this age group is also the most fearful of COVID. This fear manifests as both vaccine hesitancy and mask dependency. Vaccine advocates like Joe Biden have for months sent mixed signals that life won't really change much after getting the jab. So many wonder why becoming uh, become of guinea pig. And the aforementioned mandates among schools and employers with the accompanying lost jobs and even criminal charges naturally makes some people all the more resistant to submission. This is America, after all, at least in some form. Well, the same was the case with isolation, masks and so on. But it's even more true of an emergency uh, approved and still unsettled vaccine. Well, to tie it all together, taking vaccine is and should be, in most cases, a personal decision. That decision should be informed by as much non-politicized information as possible, and that information should be readily accessible, not suppressed by platforms that falsely claim to have your best interests at heart and to understand the science themselves. As with so many things, the tyrannical response to uh, COVID has undermined these basic truths. So here we stand on the, uh, on the precipice of opening things up. Well, I found this rather interesting. San Francisco may have, may, uh, have well earned reputation as the most progressive city in the nation. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has uh, represented the city on the Bay for more than 30 years. But viewed through the lens of critical race theory, it is also one of the most racist cities in the country. Now, hang with me for a moment. How can such a far-left ideology cast such an indictment of such a far-left city? Well, the answer lies in critical race theorists' own uh, description of their movement. The answer lies in critical race theorists. Um, Well, the theory is a radically different way of understanding our nation's past and present. According to the critical race theory, the key writings that formed the movement edited by Columbia Law School professor Kimberly Crenshaw, who first coined the term critical race theory and intersectionality, critical race theory seeks to understand how a regime of white supremacy and its subordination of people of color have been created and maintained in America. Well, critical race theory explicitly rejects the ideal of colorblindness in America, American society and traditions of integration and assimilation. Now, that was the heart of the civil rights movement, Dr. Martin Luther King and uh, those who championed that movement in the 60s. Well, instead, according to Crenshaw's book, critical race theory seeks to recover and revitalize the radical tradition of race consciousness among African-Americans and other people of color. In other words, instead of uniting Americans as one people with a common set of values, critical race theory encourages all Americans to think of themselves primarily as racial or in racial terms. Just as Marxism encourages Americans to think of themselves in terms of class, critical race theory encourages people to think of themselves in terms of race. And as an African-American, to have a perpetual grievance against those who fall outside of my racial group. Now, critical race theory, it also rejects the definition of racism as just something an individual wrongdoer does. Instead, according to Crenshaw's book, Critical race theorists, they look at the sum total of the pervasive ways in which law shapes and is shaped by race relations across social planes. Uh, Laws produce racist outcomes, not just through explicitly racist policies, but more commonly through a myriad of legal rules, many of them having nothing to do with rules against discrimination. So it doesn't matter what individuals do, say, think. 
Uh, what matters is the system and uh, how racism is perpetuated in the system by their definition. So, for example, critical race theorists often argue that when the homeowners loan corporation of the 1930s rated minority neighborhoods as financially risky by coloring them red on the maps they produced, hence the term redlining, it made it harder for black families to buy homes and begin to build wealth. Even though this practice was outlawed 50 years ago, critical race theorists claim it's still a major cause of the wealth gap between white and black families today. And you as a Caucasian are to be held personally responsible for that outcome. Critical race theory uh, is a practice, Crenshaw recently told CNN. It's an approach to grappling with a history of white supremacy that rejects uh, the belief that what's in the past is in the past and that the laws and systems that grew from that past are detached from it. In other words, there's no possibility for progress at all. Progress is an impossibility. What happened in the past is uh, ultimately relevant, whether or not its impact is the same, whether or not it's been repealed and rejected by the vast majority. I'm out of time to continue to go into detail about that, but it's really rather intriguing. And perhaps we'll spend an entire program at some point in the near future on critical race theory and its primary tenets. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, Up next, we're going to hear a classic interview with Josh Burnett. His book, Adulting 101, Book 2, of which he is a co-author. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, my next guest and his co-author have written a book on adulting. In fact, it's titled Adulting 101, Book 2, which tells you there was a book one. Well, in this second edition of the book, Josh Burnett and Pete Hardesty offer life skills and practical advice to launch 20-somethings into healthy, successful adulthood. Now, the pair have a shared passion to guide emerging adults into becoming happy, fulfilled adults. Adulting 101 Book 2 is divided into two sections. Section 1 lays out expectations, skills, and resources about self-awareness, leadership, responsible consumption of social media, and Section 2 discusses mental health issues and offers solutions regarding anxiety, depression, and loneliness. Well, they also discuss the importance of knowing God and the ways in which your faith influences your life. Well, as um, uh, a uh, follow-up to their best-selling Adulting 101, the authors offer personal examples, valuable insight, and applicable questions to help their readers. Well, with us today is Josh Burnett, one of the uh, authors of the book. He's a Chick-fil-A owner and operator, author, husband, and dad. His passion is investing in young people through his restaurant and his work with nonprofits. He served as a coach, speaker, and innovation leader throughout his career. In his free time, he enjoys reading, traveling, volunteering on several boards, in the community and snowboarding. Well, he and his wife uh, currently reside in Yorktown, Virginia with their three young children. He joins us today by phone to talk about this great resource for 20-somethings. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Burnett. Hey, thank you so much for the opportunity, Georgine. Now, let me ask you, first of all, this is Adulting 101, Book 2. Is it required that you read Book 1 in order to um, benefit from Book 2? Not at all. The the two resources completely stand alone. And in all honesty, I think that we may have written the two backwards. An easy way to think about them is book one really addresses some of the critical things that what an adult does. So this is buying or renting an apartment or buying a car or time management or interviewing jobs. So some of the hard skills. Book two really addresses who a healthy adult is. Mm-hmm. So we, we wrote the first book. We felt like there was a very tangible need 
And really the genesis of the second one was feedback that we received from the students that we work with saying, hey, this is great information, but we would love to see better modeled, like what is healthy adulthood and have a clear picture for that. Now, the word adulting has been made popular um, most recently. Sometimes it's uh, used in a way to uh, denigrate young people. In your case, it's to identify a skill set that I think a lot of young people aspire to. Talk a bit about the use of the word adulting and what your intention is in using it. Sure. So I feel like that word has really come into pop culture in a very negative way mm-hmm. where it's, uh, you see T-shirts or mugs, I don't feel like adulting today. And, and I wonder how much of that has to do with not having a clear picture of what healthy adulthood looks like and just all the benefits and joy that can come with that. Uh, and so for Pete and I, really, we're addressing it because it's obviously a very popular word within the, the language of the people that we work with frequently but really wanting to put a positive spin on life continues to have the ability to get better and better and be more and more fulfilling and uh, to have a perception that it's kind of over when you you have to quote unquote start adulting. uh, It's just not the right message we want to send the young people. Now for my generation and I'm, (laughs) I've long been an adult. I just celebrated my 65th (laughs) birthday this past weekend. Uh, The notion of, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) The notion of a book outlining what it means to be an adult and how to conduct oneself would would be unthinkable. We, for the most part, derive that wisdom from our parents and grandparents. What has changed that this kind of resource is necessary? And I would argue that it is necessary because young people really seem to be grappling with some of the basics that seem um, that came naturally within the family unit in my generation and generations before. Sure. I think there's many different things that that go into this. Ultimately, I think the world continues to grow an increasing complexity and there's continues to be more and more things that could distract and tempt us and move us away um, from that healthy adulthood state. But really, I mean, for, for both Pete and I, the reason why we wrote this is we really noticed in the young people we were working with, me as an employer and him as a nonprofit leader, was the students we were getting had great hearts, great work ethic, but really didn't have a clear picture of like, how to do some of these basics, and they weren't learning that maybe at home from uh, their parents or parents. Uh, they weren't getting that very important information through school or wherever they might be at. And so we, we're kind of the next step right after the family and the school. It's the employer and uh, just kind of broke both of our hearts. And we were like, we want to care for this generation well. And uh, these students have this felt need. I mean, I can't tell you how mm-hmm. many folks I've sat down with and said, okay, this is kind of how to buy a car. And uh, after the number of uh, conversations around that, that was really when we decided to pen the paper and say, all right, how how do we help more people with this more consistently? But Yeah. yeah, really a lot of it just not being seen or maybe there's just not the opportunity to happen in the home. In the back of your book, you write, growing old is mandatory, growing up is optional. And you're talking about young people who long to uh, to know what it means to grow up, what it looks like, how to manage certain uh, things that are sort of rites of passage when you are in your 20s. And your book gives them the practical wisdom that they need uh, to do just that. Now let's talk about the difference between knowledge. There's a lot of information. We live in an information age and wisdom. What are some tips on how to gain wisdom uh, in the midst of so much um, access to information? Sure. So yes, to your point, I mean, we live with an encyclopedia in our pocket at any given time. 
uh, we've never had to question the ability to find knowledge, but I feel like wisdom is the application of that. And knowledge has almost become a commodity where we don't take it that next step to apply wisdom. And so Pete and I give just a few tips and tricks around, uh, I mean, honestly, a lot of basics, but uh, developing self-awareness is a big piece of this. And how are you coming across? Um, so in order to gain wisdom and understanding, you first need to understand yourself. We talk about engaging in different experiences and finding a uh, constellation of mentors, people that you want to be more like and spending time with them and, and just really finding new experiences to be a part of. We feel like we gain and learn so much from engaging with people that are different than us and visiting places that are unfamiliar and really want to encourage people to kind of take the next step and uh, be able to apply some of that knowledge and turn it into wisdom. You begin uh, the book on the subject of self-awareness. Um, in an age where social media focuses a lot of attention on oneself and what others, how others perceive us, talk about the, the subject of self-awareness and um, the fact that it's a cornerstone to adulthood. Sure. So we, we kind of build the first section of this book around what is healthy adulthood. And we say that it's knowing yourself and then leading yourself and then knowing others and leading others. So we start chapter one around the concept of self-awareness and back to the whole point as everybody grows up, but I mean, you, everybody gets old, but they don't always grow up. Um, I mean, we all know a lot of folks in our lives that have continued to get older and older, but they still are very unaware of who they really are. And they've struggled to look in the mirror in terms of mm -hmm. how do they come across to the people that are in their lives and their relationships. So we, we try to give, again, some, some basic tips and tricks. And really, we desire this book to be a great launching point. We cover a lot of topics um, in pretty quick fashion. And so we really desire this to be a wonderful resource for parents, for employers, for youth group leaders, whoever it might be that you have somebody in your life that's a little bit younger and they're like, hey, I want to start this dialogue and really helping to launch uh, this student in my life well. Um, that's really the desire for this book is to be that resource. Well, and it is a great practical resource in all the ways you've just described. Now, I need to take a break here in a moment, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the uh, book Adulting 101. We're talking about book two, but there is also a book one and it would make a great gift for a graduate or someone in your life that you uh, want to help mentor into um, uh, strong adulthood. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about how you can acquire the book when we return as well. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Josh Burnett in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Josh Burnett. He is a Chick-fil-A owner and operator, spends a lot of time around young people. He's also the co-author, along with... Um, uh, his uh, co-author, Pete Hardesty, of the book Adulting 101, Book 2. As I mentioned uh, earlier, there's also a book one, and I would encourage you to pick up both. Uh, great resources to uh, engage in conversation with one, young people, or if you happen to fit into that category, to sort of guide you through some of the questions and things you ought to be thinking about to become a responsible thinking and um, What's the word I'm, I'm trying to think of? Anyway, adults, so all of those, all of those things. Um, you recommend young adults find friends who are different than they are. Uh, talk about the value of a mentor and how uh, to find a mentor and, and 
to find and cultivate relationships with people who uh, are different than, than you might happen to be. Sure. So we'll, we can split that up into two different pieces. I feel like a, a mentor, just somebody that's a little bit ahead of you in life that you aspire to be more like and uh, always seeking out, not necessarily even just one person. And it doesn't even have to be particularly formal, but having different older people in your life that you want to grow and learn and be more like really help to give you guidance into where you're at in your journey. And so this has been something that's been really crucial for me over my years. In fact, my co-author, I would say, has been one of those mentors, but really somebody that gives you great perspective, being able to kind of look back and give you a much more objective point of view than what you're able to have in the moment. And that can be as informal as uh, engaging with uh, maybe friends of, if you're a younger person of, of your parents that you, you like, that, hey, you could see sitting down over a cup of coffee or over a meal and just hearing a little bit more about their story and really wanting to learn about who they are and their lives. So having mentors, not just one, but a multitude of people that you can pull from and get valuable information is crucial. Second piece of that is engaging with people that are unlike yourself. It's very easy for us to kind of go back into these silos of comfort. And as a result, we can continue to, if you, if you only surround yourself with people that think the same way that you do or like the same things that you like, then you, you don't have an opportunity to experience how vibrant life can truly be. I would say some of the, my biggest learnings in life have been from the people that believe as differently from me as can be. Um, so I, I try to seek out the smartest people that I respect and care for that completely disagree with everything that I believe. And I, I feel as though I get a chance to understand myself a little bit better, but also have a chance to understand where they're coming from and point of view as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You write about uh, emotional quotient and cultural quotient, EQ and CQ, um, and that touches on what you just mentioned. But what are some of the ways to grow our emotional and cultural intelligence? Sure. So with EQ, that's going to be like your emotional quotient, or your emotional maturity. And we give, again, just a few tips and tricks that this applies to. We, we talk about this within the context of knowing and engaging with other people and having the ability to read that well. Uh, the, the biggest thing is, hey, what do your listening skills look like? Are you a good listener that can uh, be in a conversation and genuinely hear what that other person is saying? And that alone, I mean, so in the industry that I'm in, I have the privilege of working with the public, and occasionally we'll have some folks that are, that are upset about something that we've messed up. And nine times out of 10, they just want to be heard. Mm -hmm. there's something else in their life that is very hard or frustrating. We've made a mistake and they're very upset. And if you just let them have a chance to, to express that, um, it really goes a long way to diffuse the situation. We talk about um, even just smiling more. A conversation can look very, very different. This is one of the skills that we work on at Chick-fil-A, actually. We talk a lot about the, the ability to, to smile and to share a smile with a guest. And I think, again, to the to being able to read and understand other people that this is a huge deal. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that you also have a segment in the book where you talk about how we communicate with others through social media and technology, what the etiquette should be. 
um, mm-hmm. how to uh, how to approach all of that. And that that's a big deal, not only in terms of personal relationship with uh, individuals on social media, but how it impacts our professional life in the future. Sure. I think the biggest, I mean, overarching filter is remembering that there's a human being on the other side of it. So for, for young folks that have grown up with an iPhone in hand, and it's a very natural extension of who they are in their body, um, it is very easy to just see a screen and not see a person on the other side of it. So with any of the etiquette components we, we talk a lot about, just remember that there's a real person on the other side and how would that feel if it were you? And treating the person digitally the same way you would in, in person. Are you going to yell and scream or be that upset if they were staring and looking at you face to face? And we, we talk a lot about even um, we've kind of confused over time this communication for connection. We, we have the ability to engage with so many people in our pocket at any time. Um, and sometimes we'll, we'll confuse our friend group and people that care about us um, for actually just pieces of communication instead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, in the second half of your book, you discuss mental health issues and offers solutions on anxiety and depression and loneliness. Let's begin with uh, loneliness, which is um, epidemic in our culture in general, but certainly among young people. What kind of uh, advice do you offer young people with regard to loneliness, even though they have access through technology, as you were just discussing, to so many more people than they might just in the normal course of life? Uh, first of all, why is loneliness such an uh, acute issue, and how do you address it among those uh, who are adulting? Sure. So this is my the, the part that I like to make sure to give a disclaimer. So um, as is known, I'm a, I'm a Chick-fil-A owner-operator, but both Pete and I, we resource about five different um, counselors and therapists that we really trust their opinion to help us really create and cultivate the content in the second half of the book. So the information that's in this, uh, especially if somebody's listening to this right now, it's like, wait, I thought he sold chicken. Um, we, we did take <laughs> a lot of this information um, from these other folks that do this professionally and for a living, and they helped us to craft these content, this content. And so for each topic, there's going to be two chapters. The, the first one's going to be about helping to better understand or define what that is. So in the scenario, loneliness. And then the second one is just some entry-level ideas around, hey, how do you go about overcoming loneliness? And for each of the mental health topics, we also say, hey, even if this doesn't apply to you, here's how you help a friend in need, or here's how you identify a friend in need. So you might be listening to this broadcast and you're like, man, that doesn't really apply to me, but I'm sure there's somebody in your sphere of influence that it does apply to. And we wanted to make sure to address that as well. So again, this is really intended to be a great launching point to say, hey, okay, I do feel loneliness and here's some next steps to help me work through that. Uh, But as you know, there's infinite content seemingly written about each of these topics. So some of the very practical components and as basic as it may sound is really just going out and getting involved. Find a workplace, find a common interest group, find a church or a small group and get connected or plugged in with with a group of people or with somebody else that has similar interests. And then really being the person to initiate that. And that's sometimes the scariest thing. That's Mm -hmm. the wall that keeps us from moving forward is being concerned about taking a risk and moving and and putting yourself out there. So we really just encourage you, hey, initiate and get out there, be real and vulnerable, and then have patience. Um, Sometimes 
with living in the age of instant. We want everything right now. And oftentimes friendships and relationships don't, don't work that way. It takes time. It takes uh, energy and effort. And if we bail at the first sign of challenge, then we'll always be cycling through people for our entire lives. Yeah, yeah. We're just about out of time, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to comment on the close of the book. You have a chapter on faith um, as a critical element of adulthood. Can you talk a bit about that? Of course. So for both Pete and I, um, our faith and who we are with Jesus means more to us than anything else. But the way that both books were written was so that it would appeal to more than just people with a faith background. So the desire is, hey, this information applies to anybody, wherever they're at in their journey. But at the end, we'd like to bring it home to say, hey, for for Pete and I, this is a critical part of who we are. And this really is the lens that we're looking at the world through. And because of that, and because of who we know we are in Jesus, that is what provides us um, that security and that kind of paints that self-awareness picture and that that influences how we engage and care for other people. And so we want to make sure that if we write a book around healthy adulthood, uh, it's really got to launch with that foundation. So we try to close with that at the end. Yeah. Now, how can our listeners acquire copies of Adulting 101, Books 1 and 2? It's at any major retailer online. And Amazon is kind of the classic marketplace for that. Excellent. Well, Josh, thank you so much for the books and thank you for joining us here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a much anticipated report has been released by the U.S. intelligence community and the Department of Defense. That was on Friday examining unidentified aerial phenomenon. Now, that's replaced UFOs, unidentified flying objects. So now it is UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomenon, witnessed by U.S. military personnel in recent years, found no evidence that the objects are of extraterrestrial origin. Oh, I can almost hear the disappointment all across the fruited plain. However, the report, which was mandated by Congress, said the U.S. government can explain 143 of the 144 cases of unidentified flying objects reported by military planes. Now, that's significant. Let me repeat it. The U.S. government can't explain 143 of the 144 cases of unidentified flying objects reported by military planes. Well, the one unidentified aerial phenomenon uh, that the government was eventually able to identify was a large deflated balloon, according to the report. The others remain unexplained. Well, the limited uh, amount of high-quality reporting on unidentified aerial phenomenon hampers our ability to draw firm conclusions about the nature or intent of UAP. It concluded that UAP were not the result of advanced U.S. government technology. Yet investigators believe that the majority of the sightings were physical objects, according to CNN. We absolutely do believe what we're seeing are not simply sensor artifacts. These are things that physically exist. The official said that 80% of the reported incidents included data from multiple sensors and that in 11 cases, investigators think there was a near-miss collision with the U.S. personnel. 
Lawmakers and intelligence and military personnel investigating UAP have expressed greater concern that the unidentified objects could be the results of a foreign adversary, such as Russia or China, testing next-generation technology in U.S. airspace, rather than the possibility that aliens are visiting Earth. There are significant implications if that's the case. However, Representative Jim Himes, a Democrat out of Connecticut, said last week that if the sightings were the result of Chinese or Russian technology, the intelligence community would not want to reveal what it does and does not know. Well, they're very sensitive to, if this is uh, an adversary, you want to be really careful about saying, we know this and we don't know that, he said. The report is going to be a little unsatisfying for what the reason um, uh, for that reason and that reason alone. So whether or not they know that to be the case, that it is Chinese or Russian technology, they wouldn't say it outright is the point he's making. Senator Marco Rubio, who pushed the Senate Foreign, uh, or rather Senate Intelligence Committee to pass legislation requiring the Pentagon and intelligence community to provide a public analysis of the encounters, called the release of the report an important first step. For years, the men and women who uh, we trust to defend our country reported encounters with unidentified aircraft that have superior capability, and for years, their concerns were often ignored or ridiculed. Well, maybe a better way of putting it, they weren't discussed publicly. Well, in a statement on Friday, he went on to say this report is an important first step in cataloging these incidents, but it is just a first step. The Defense Department and intelligence community have a lot of work to do before we can actually understand whether these aerial threats present a serious national security concern. Well, I would agree that it's probably already known, rather, to what degree uh, or to the degree possible to what degree these uh, pose a national security concern. But I would also um, uh, speculate that it's probably not in the nation's best interest to make public uh, what is known or thought to be known about these UP, UAPs, as they're now referred to. Mark Alexander had this to say about the UFO report confirming a, um, alien Uh, Aliens wearing tinfoil hats, a bit tongue-in-cheek, he writes, Back in June of 1947, Foster Ranch foreman William Mack Brazel, he noticed some odd debris. It was located about 30 miles from Roswell Army Airfield in New Mexico. Original reports of an unidentified flying object were sensational, but as it turned out, what Mack discovered were the remains of a weather balloon. However, for that remote area of New Mexico, the findings certainly fed a UFO a tourism boom. Fact is, humans have been fascinated with the sky and things in it for all that uh, of recorded history. And in this digital age, when virtually everyone on the planet is carrying a camera as a feature of their mobile device, word about UFOs on or above Earth spread rapidly. However, despite the exponential proliferation of cameras and enormous increase in photo resolution, nothing but blurry and shaky low-resolution images of suspected UFOs have emerged since the 1950s. It's kind of the uh, Bigfoot phenomenon. With all the technology we have now, we can't seem to snap a clear picture of this um, creature. However, after some high-profile military tracking reports became public, like video from Navy pilots chasing Tic Tac sightings, last year, former President Donald Trump signed off on the Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2021, which included an order to release a report making public what the government knows about UFOs, now called Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. In March, former Director of National Intelligence John Radcliffe fueled the excitement about the report when he declared, frankly, there is a lot more sightings than have been made public. We are talking about objects that have been seen by Navy and Air Force pilots or have been picked up by satellite imagery that, frankly, 
engage in actions that are difficult to explain, movements that are hard to replicate, uh, that we don't have the technology for, or are traveling at speeds that exceed the sound barrier without a sonic boom. Well, last week, Joe Biden's current DNI finally released the preliminary assessment unidentified aerial phenomenon I referenced a moment ago. The report's findings were Substantially less than a giant leap for mankind, much to the disappointment of many sky watchers. And the New York Times concluded earlier this month from preliminary findings, there is zero evidence that any of the 144 UAP reports over the past two decades subjected a serious review were of extraterrestrial origin. So there you have it. For the record, The vast majority of verified sightings are, in fact, U.S.-developed technology and that our adversaries... um, Uh, And that of our adversaries. That's what many are speculating. To that end, in a fireside chat about that technology earlier this year, it was posited that unexplained sightings such as the Tic Tac um, uh, reports of 2004 and 2015 are the result of DARPA type R&D programs. In this case, an energy weapon with an electronic signature that can be altered, which explains both the battle group cruiser radar intercepts and the F-18E. Uh, AT FLIR intercepts as well. Recall that the 2004 cruiser radar intercept had been occurring for days before the uh, the fight, uh, flight to investigate. Similarly, in 2015, Navy pilots indicated they had been seeing these uh, intercepts every time they went up. There's good video analysis on the Tic Tac sightings by a former Navy fighter, fighter pilot. Finally, uh, finally, rather, in an ironic turn of events, SpaceX competitor Blue Origin will be launching a bona fide alien uh, back into space. Actually, its owner, the wealthiest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, announced that he will be a passenger on the first crewed uh, flight. Uh, that news immediately prompted a petition, do not allow Jeff Bezos to return to Earth, which, as this um, uh, program, um, as of this program, rather, has more than 130,000 signatures. Huh, anyway, just sort of a an observation. The much-anticipated report has now been made, and we know nothing more than we knew before the report came out. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We are out of time. Tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with uh, Oss Hillman, 31 Degrees of uh, Blessing for Your Work. Uh, for your work life. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.